this morning and this teaching on chapter 9 is kind of a little bit of a personal journey and challenge. For me, um, I really felt like there can be this temptation as we're reading through hard parts of scripture to be like, um, I don't really understand that, but it's probably okay. And so the teaching I'm going to give out of is this one tiny little person here that ignores all these other weird things that are said and just goes, it's okay, guys. Us, you know, or something like that. And I felt really sure all the way since last summer when we decided to do Romans, this was the chapter that I was afraid of. And I had a conversation with Ryan where I was like, I don't know if I want to go there. I don't know if we should go through Romans. This is hard. And I'm not sure that I am equipped to carry us through these kinds of scriptures um, because I have had my own journey with scripture and frustrations in it and feeling like this doesn't really match up with who I know God to be and I'm not really comfortable with um, just being like, well, I don't know. Your ways are higher than mine. I mean, I, that is a true response in my heart. His ways are higher than mine and we cannot know everything. But I don't think that that's always the, the best way for us to engage scripture. I think that God stands up to our questions. And I think he's not afraid of them. And so I wanted to approach chapter 9, not afraid to really try to understand what is being said here. And so this morning, <coughs> we're going to do a little bit more um, explaining as we go through. Um, I just kind of pushed myself to not skip past any weird references and to figure out if I could resolve them in my head and in my heart. And so I'm going to just kind of let you guys know where I came to with things um, and how. But the questions that we go through in our packet, I think we do, we put those out, our journaling questions. We give those to you guys on purpose. We spend a lot of time figuring out what are the important questions that we ask ourselves when we approach scripture. And the first one is, what's just happening here? What is being said? What is the context? What is going on at this time in history? So understanding that is important. And then we can go to the questions of, so what can I conclude about God? What can I conclude about people? And what's my response? So we are going to take kind of that model this morning. But um, I want to give us a few ground rules as we go through just a reminder of the way that we here at Nurture want to read scripture and want to approach scripture. The first is that we always approach it with humility and we're willing to hold tension and space to disagree and to not always understand completely. And I took a lot of comfort as I was reading a lot of um, commentaries that a lot of really smart people have a lot of different opinions and that's okay because the big ones stay the big ones and that's what we can agree on. Um, and I did think that it was really interesting. Um, Peter, who is right up there with Paul, right? You can find in his letters, in 2 Peter 3.16, he actually references that Paul is very hard to understand. <laughs> he writes, he writes about Paul, 2 Peter 3.16, he says, he writes in this way in all his letters, speaking in them about such matters. Some parts of his letters are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. Peter is saying that about the way that Paul writes, right? What was it? 2 Peter 3.16. He is writing and saying, you guys, I know he's kind of a weird writer. <laughs> and he has this personality where it's hard to understand the way that he says things. And so ignorant and 
unstable people distort them as they do the rest of scripture. So I took a lot of comfort in that, that we can kind of approach this and go, Paul is writing this and we need to take into context how he writes, that he does a lot of these run-on sentences. What we're going to find is that he references a lot of things that he takes for granted. The people he's writing to have all of the background, and so he doesn't fill in the gaps for them because he's writing a real letter to a group of people in that time, and he's not thinking, oh, a thousand years from now, these people aren't going to know what I'm talking about, and they're going to make all of these jumps and conclude different things about my God. So... Ground rule number one, we approach with humility. Number two, we let God's word become flesh. I've talked about this a lot. Sorry if it sounds like a broken record. We let God's word become flesh. That's Jesus. Be the highest interpreter of God's word inspired and written down. So if a word is an ultimate meaning of intent, and Jesus is God's word become flesh, if we hold scripture and our interpretations of what the written down word means, if we hold that up to Jesus' character, the way that he acts and treats people, the way that he talks, the stories that he tells, and they don't match up, then my conclusion is that we have misunderstood. Not that Jesus is now modeling something in opposition with what God's word earlier said. Does that make sense? So that's number two. And then <clears throat> number three, a lens makes a huge difference in what we come out seeing as we approach scripture. So we have to acknowledge that we all come to the Bible with a lens, with a view over our eyes from how we grew up, from the churches that we were raised in, from what we were taught, right or wrong, from the culture that we live in, in Western society, we just all, we can't even help it. We just all come and approach the scripture with a lens over our eyes. So we just need to know that that will shape the way that we see things. A little example of that, just for fun, before we get into all the heavy stuff. Hold on, hold on. What is this? Nope, that's Psalms. <laughs> We're not doing that right now. I'm not singing for you. Okay, so when you look at this, right, some of you see an old woman, correct? Anybody see an old woman? The nose right here and the eyes. And some of you see like a young lady with a feather off her head and here's her hair and that's her ear and her tiny little nose. When you look at something one way, you see one thing. But as soon as someone points out, I don't know you're all So who sees a duck? Okay. Now who sees a bunny? Okay, so just keep in mind, as we have been trained to approach something, we see it that way, and then everything that we read confirms what we've been trained to see. But as soon as somebody shifts a perspective and helps us view a different way, all of a sudden, everything that we read can confirm a different scripture. So we just need to be careful of that and know that that is just how we engage with any sort of reading or things uh, in God's word. So... A lot of people approach Roman 9, Romans 9 with the lens that this is talking about salvation. And that this is talking about, like, I was just talking with the Bible study of girls that I meet on Tuesday night. Um, we have been trained in our very, like, individualistic culture to approach the Bible like, what is this saying to me? What does this have to do with me as my, like, 30-year-old self in California? And we're looking for a little nugget to put on a 
cross-stitch pillow or something and we make it very individual and that's the lens but when we do that with Romans 9 all of a sudden like a lot of people can start to freak out and be like what is happening God hates people I don't understand is salvation even a choice it's not a choice like what's happening right now so we're going to pause and we're just going to zoom out zoom our lens out just a little bit and we're going to remember this is an entire letter written to a specific group of people. It wasn't broken up by chapters. Chapter nine is arbitrary right here. This is just a continuation. So he has just been talking in Romans eight all about, well actually in the whole of the letter of Romans, the entirety, Paul has been talking to them about the mystery of the gospel and how it is going to be revealed to the whole world. And he's talking about how God has this sweeping, overarching plan to bring the message of salvation to the whole world. And so now he's writing the Jews and he's saying, we've come upon this point in history where things have shifted. And there's this great mystery of how, like, there's a plot twist now. And you guys were the chosen people that were supposed to bring this message of salvation to the whole world. But now it's not just going to be through you, but it's open to everybody. And everybody can be the people of God charged with the mission to bring the message of the gospel and the power of salvation to the whole world. So he's saying, and then he just talks in in chapter 8, he's encouraging them and saying, this is such great news. And you guys are bound together now, not by something like external, but you're bound together internally by the Spirit. And if God is for you, who can be against you? You have this mission now that you're going to take out into the whole world and tell them God is for them. And God wants them in his family. And there is, you know, we're going to get into that. But that's the message that he's just been saying. And he's saying, and nothing can separate you from it. This is powerful stuff. And it's really good news. So then he comes into chapter 9. And um, he shifts and he begins to address some people that he's writing to, that this doesn't feel like very good news to. Or at least it feels a little confusing to them. So turn with me to Romans 9, 1 through 5, and we're going to read a little Romans today. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, for my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are the Israelites, and to them belonged the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul is writing. I promise everything that's in the Bible is right here. Um, so Paul's writing actually to his Jewish brothers in the church of Rome. He's talking about their former brothers, the Jews who have not come into this belief of the way. And these brothers, you have to realize, like they were just kinsmen of the flesh the house of Israel, with these Jewish brothers, and now some of them have believed in the Christ, and they have become part of the way, and some of them are trying to kill them. Now, that's a huge divide between people who used to be family, and Paul's talking about those people right now, and he's saying, my heart is breaking for my fellow Jews. I was just plucked up from them. I was one of them and trying to persecute and oppose you guys. God saved me. 
brought me over here into the way with you, but my heart is breaking for all of them. And if I could, I would choose to not have been the one plucked up and saved so that they could be, so that they could see. And he's sympathizing with his Jewish brothers in the church, and he's saying, I get it, this is, this is hard stuff. And I think we give the Jews a hard time, in, like the Jewish Christians, a hard time when we go, well, why are they so like judgy of these Gentiles coming in? But if you think about what it would be like to be a Jewish Christian at that time and have all of their former like brothers and kinsmen of the flesh, like Paul is talking about, now opposing them and trying to kill them, it's got to be unsettling. Like they're going, and then they're hearing all of these new rules. Like what? I thought we were the people of God. Now everybody gets to be the people of God. I was. I grew up being told that these rules were really important and they set us apart. And now they just don't matter. And these other people don't have to follow them. Like, is everything a lie? Is everything a shame? Sham? Has everything been upended? If God's plan was the Israelite people to carry this message to the world, and now, all of a sudden, his plan has changed, and it's everybody that's going to, then, like, did it just not work? Did it fail? And so, now he's just, like, scrapping the plan and making a new one? Like, those are real questions. That's like a process of deconstruction of faith. And I really resonate with that as I was reading this. I can relate to that. I grew up in the church and I had a lot of frameworks. And as I've gotten older and hit different points in my walk with God, in my reading of scripture, in my experiences in the churches, I've hit a lot of points where I've been like, what? This isn't what I thought. This doesn't sound right. Or I hear something new and I go, that sounds more right, but it feels wrong because it's against what I've been like taught in. So like, what am I supposed to do with this? And it can be very uneasy. And I think that's the place that Paul is writing to the Jews out of. So I just want us to hold some empathy in our hearts for these people. Um, because it's bringing out frustrations between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church, right? So Paul is meeting them kind of where they're at. And the first question, so that's really what we're going to hit up against here in the rest of chapter 9, is some big questions that the Jews have uh, as their faith is kind of being deconstructed a little bit, their understanding of it. So the first question that they come up with is, has God failed? Has his plan failed? Is this a story of God not being who I thought he was? I have asked that question. Is this a story of God not being who I always thought he was? As far as the Jews knew, God's original plan was that they were unique because they were the sons of Abraham. And now, it just means that anybody gets to be the sons of God and the people of God, so they're confused. And Paul says, this is not a misunderstanding of God's plan. Verse 6 says, but it's not as though God's word has failed. Not all who descended from Israel are from Israel. Not all are children just because they're offspring. And so we've talked about this a lot, and I don't want to spend too much time on this section because I think that we've hit it in other times. But what he's explaining is you had a really simplistic understanding of what God was doing. You had a very narrow view. You thought that it was flesh. You thought that it was genealogy. You thought that it was heritage and bloodline that made you the people of God, but it's always been faith. It was faith when Abraham believed, and it's been passed down as faith. And so when um, he references all of these stories of Isaac being chosen instead of Ishmael, and Jacob being chosen instead of Esau, he's referencing their lineage, and he's about to show, he's trying to show them this has been happening all along. 
God has been steady. Your view has been too small. God has been constantly choosing the people, not because they worked through effort like Abraham did to get a son, Ishmael, right? Not because of their own striving and effort, but because of my miracle and plan, Isaac. Not because of bloodline and law and the way that it should be and the supposed most powerful, rightful owner of it, like Esau would have been, because Esau was the firstborn son. And in that tradition, the firstborn son, even if they're twins and he comes out one second sooner, the firstborn is the rightful owner of the promise, the rightful owner of the blessing, the rightful owner of all that the father had. And so God is saying, it's not gonna be according to your laws. It's according to who I choose. And I'm gonna show you that it can be the weaker one. It can even be the shifty, unfaithful one. <laughs> it's gonna be Jacob this time. He's gonna be the one to carry on my message, to carry on this promise of bringing the gospel to the rest of the world. So that's what Paul is referencing in that story. That's why he's bringing up those names. Not because he hates Esau. Paul's language drives me nuts a little bit, but um, I actually, in my study, I get that sounds flippant, but there's a lot that you can study and read about the Edomites and Esau and his line and how God references them a lot and talks about how he wants to bring them back in, but they continually choose to oppose what God is doing through Jacob and the Israelites. Um, but anyway, for our purposes... This is not a story of God not being who they thought. This is a story of God's ever-unfolding glory and sovereignty and him being bigger than they thought. So what this tells me about people is that we make God small and we make him controllable and we make him understandable and we make him kind of serve our purposes and then he's not about that. And so he comes in as many times as he has to in love, and he breaks our pictures of him, and he breaks down our boxes that we've shaped, like that we've shaped around him. And he goes, I will not be contained by a box or by your self-serving purposes. I am bigger than that. Um, so my first takeaway is if you find yourself like in a little bit of a place of a deconstruction of your faith or in a, some confusion of scripture, it doesn't mean that God is shaken. It doesn't mean that God is a sham. It means he's expanding your view of him because he doesn't want to be small and controllable by you. And he's, his, his, uh, who he is is always bigger than our simplistic understanding and so we can trust. And that doesn't mean, I, I don't really love the like, well, I think I said this, well, I can't really understand, so I don't need to figure it out. I think he's more addressing the pride of, oh, I understand. I knew it all along. This is how God works. And he's saying, no, I can break that box at any time if I want to. I don't work in one controllable way. Don't have pride and think that you understand me in that way. But yes, seek, ask questions, search. I am not afraid of that. Um, okay, so the next question that we come up against as Paul is kind of taking them through his train of thought is verse 14. And he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? <coughs> For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now remember, this is the question in the Jews' hearts. 
who are feeling like it's not fair that God's including, including or choosing even like undeserving, uncomfortable people to now be a part of his people. Um, a little bit like everybody thought it was unfair that Jacob was chosen over Esau. Is that unjust? Is God unjust? So they're asking now, is, it, is God unfair? Um, let me see. Verse 16. So, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So when I read this and I'm looking small, and I go, and I'm looking for me and trying to understand, I go, okay, so is God just like sitting up there throwing darts? Like, I'll have mercy. I will harden. I will, you know, like, and he just has the right to do that. And Paul's just being like, yeah, get over it. He's got the right to choose whoever he wants. Like, that's what I read when I'm looking small, but when I remember who he's talking to, the Jews, who are crying out, unfair, this was our right, this was our purpose, then I see it a little bit broader. I want us to define a couple words in this big section, because it will help us with our lens. So first of all, what is the it in this verse? Look at verse 16, if you've got your Bibles in front of you. So then it depends not on human will or on peace or exertion. So if the it is salvation, if all of a sudden Paul is suddenly jumping to talk about salvation, then this can become a little bit concerning. But all along, Paul has been talking about the plan of salvation. If God's plan to bring salvation to the whole world depends on human will or on exertion, or it depends not on that, but on God who has mercy. So if it's if it's what he's been talking about all along, this plan of bringing salvation to the world, this message of the gospel, then we begin to see it a little bit differently. And we know in verse 11 that he was just talking about that because in verse 11 he says, in order that God's purpose of election, his purpose in choosing Israel was to carry that blessing to the world, might continue, not because of works of him who but of him who calls. So if it's possible that just five verses later he's still on the same train of thought and talking about the purpose that was Israel was charged with and that purpose to be bringing the message of the gospel and the, the plan of salvation to the world, then we can keep reading with that lens. So let's read with that lens. Oh, I have this quote for you from... Um, okay, so our big question is, is God... Um, this is just one commentary uh, called Soteriology, I hate that word, 101, <laughs> that I was reading, and um, I just really liked uh, how simply he summed that up. He says, the biblical account draws a stark distinction between those chosen to bring the word and those God intends through faith to be blessed by the word. And he's talking about, in that, he's talking about the purpose of Israel and the it, if the it is God's plan to bring the gospel to the world and the role that people will play in doing that. Um, okay, so another word we're going to de define, mercy. <clears throat> is mercy necessarily salvation? Is having mercy on somebody salvation? Or, is is, or can mercy be patience, as suggested in the scriptures? I'm reading, um, I'm reading it more as patience. You can disagree with me, but... 
if you unfold all of these analogies that he's showing, and he even references having great patience, enduring with patience later on. Um, so if God is saying that, then he's saying, I can have mercy. I can be patient when it serves my greater purpose to be patient. And like Jackson talked uh, last week about shoving his hand, God's hand. How many of you were there for Sunday's message? Oh, it was great. Jackson. And Ryan actually in one of his other me uh, messages referenced God's wrath as this unfolding thing. They were both talking about if you view God's wrath as this turbulent river that people are on boats kind of toppling to their end in, and God sticks his hand in the river and he holds the current. And he goes, hold off. That's my picture of patience and mercy. God is putting his hand in and he's saying, I can put it in and I can lift it up when it serves my greater purpose. So pardon being like the give them over to that Ryan has talked about, and even bear it down. Um, so now Paul goes into the example of Moses and Pharaoh which can be confusing, but if he's talking to Jews who think, hey, why is God all of a sudden giving mercy to all these other people when we were the chosen ones? And then he references Moses and Pharaoh, first of all, and he says, okay, I've shown you mercy. Let me tell you when I've shown you mercy. I swooped you up out of Egypt and he's reminding them of this story of how he allowed, he gave Pharaoh over to hardness and he showed great mercy on Israel, even though they're about to go into the into the wilderness. I seriously, almost did that. Um, they're about to go out into the wilderness, and they're going to complain, and they're going to make idols, and they're going to need a lot of patience from God themselves. But God shows them mercy, and he rescues them because in that time, it served his purpose of carrying the message of the gospel out into the world, of preserving the Israelite people and moving them out. That's when it served his greater purpose. And then he does this tricky thing where by referencing Pharaoh, hold on, I gotta find this but I don't mess it up. By referencing Pharaoh back then and tying it to what's happening right now, who's the ones being given over and being hardened and opposing the message of the gospel right now? The Jewish people. And he's saying, okay, but now, if I needed to give them over to the hardening of their heart, to allow them to be steeped in blindness, to miss the Christ, because guess what I needed to happen? I actually needed Christ to be crucified. Because through that, my plan kept getting carried out. He needed to be crucified. He needed somebody to not be rescued and saved, to not have the wool pulled over their eyes quite, or pulled up from their eyes quite yet. They needed to crucify him so that my plan of salvation, the same one I've had all along, could move forward, could continue to carry through. And so, yes, I gave them over to their blindness. And now, in it, you are seeing me extend mercy to so many more. Um, so there's two things that come out here. First, Paul is just reminding them, hey, Jews, I don't not love you. I've shown you mercy time and time again. And just because I long for all to be saved and I'm showing mercy now to more, it doesn't mean that I don't still love you and I don't intend to show mercy to whoever wants it. This isn't a story of an exclusion. This isn't a story of who's in and who's out and God up there just being you and not you and you. This is a message of inclusion, of God's constant unfolding plan to include as many as possible. Um, and like I told you, we're going to try to confirm our lens 
with a lens of Jesus, God's word become flesh and lived out for us. So if you look, and some of you who did the deeper reflection, you've got to explore this a little bit, but if you look at Matthew 20, we're going to look at two stories that Jesus tells when he was walking with the disciples. Matthew 20, they're back to back. Matthew 20 is the first story, and he tells this story of um, laborers in a vineyard, right? They're coming, and they're working for the kingdom, and he has said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is how it works in my economy. And he said, and the story is that there are some people that he hires from the very beginning of the day, and they work the vineyard, and then he hires, and they agree on a fair wage, and then he adds in people throughout the day. And there's some people that come, and they only work like one hour at the end of the day. And then when the time comes, the owner of the vineyard gives out the same wages. And the people who worked at the beginning of the day are like, that's not fair. Are you unfair? And he says, why? Let's see, in Matthew 20, 13, he says, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Which, if, uh, just side note, is like an exorbitant amount of money to walk a vineyard. Um, Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? I do think that it's interesting also that when Jesus is talking about this, he's talking about the, like, the job that these workers were charged with. That's what's being like begrudged. That's what they're upset about. This is They're talking about a purpose, a job. You were given the purpose of working my vineyard. And then I'm just going to let some other people work it too. Um, so what I read here is true about people, is that we do tend to begrudge God's generosity. And we want to earn his favor. And we, want to, and we feel like it's unfair when we work super hard. And then God shows grace and mercy and inclusion to people that seem a little less deserving than us, to people that seem a little less comfortable to us, that don't fit as well, that don't follow the rules the same. And we go, it's not, it's not what I thought this was all about. I kind of want it to look a certain way. Um, my kids do this all the time. I have this analogy in front of my face all the time. They really want to be the administrators of justice. They really, really, their favorite thing to do is to tell me to point out my inconsistencies when I am not, which I know is like parenting fail, because number one is like, well, I'm not all the time. Because my kids are different, and they need different things from me. Um, but my kids love to show me, I did that exact same thing, and you got so mad at me, and you're just sitting into his room for a second? That's not fair. You know? Wait, I got ice cream because I worked really hard on this thing, and you're just buying the rest of them ice cream too? They didn't even work hard on anything. How is this a reward for me then? But they were thrilled when I said, that's so great, let's go celebrate and get ice cream. They just thought it meant just them. And somehow the ice cream tastes better if it's just them. <laughs> this is the heart of humans, right? So do I resent the inclusion of less deserving people or uncomfortable people? And have I lost sight of how much mercy I have been shown? That's my next question for us. And then the second thing this comes in that same question of, I don't understand, is God unfair? Um, I think Paul can tell all right, you guys are going to have a little bit of a hard time understanding this. We're going to have to keep going with this analogy. So he has another story to tell. And he brings up the analogy of the potter and the clay. So let's keep going. Verse 19. 
morning. It doesn't get easier. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use? Please note there that he's talking about use of vessels and vessels that carry things. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So remember first that Paul is referencing or he's playing devil's advocate from the standpoint of a hardened Jew, of a Jew who has not received, who didn't see the Christ, who rejected the Christ, who isn't a part of the way and who is opposing God's people now. That's who he's like playing the role of when he says, so you'll say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Is this not even my fault? <laughs> but I will be honest, when I'm reading it, that's my first question too. Like, does a lump of clay, that seems pretty lifeless, does that equal like a puppet with no say? Like, is that what I am, God? I'm just like this lifeless lump of clay that has no say or decision-making power and you just shape me into whatever you want. That's what, that's what I'm reading here with my narrow lens. And even when I pull it back and I remind myself, this is a mad Jew that is saying this and trying to like argue with God, it's still, it's still hard for me. And the question, oops, we're behind here. The question is, is this a story of no choice? So, we have to figure out what Paul is talking about in this reference of the potter and the clay. Because he's giving a small version of a story, but what we can find out is that that was a very common analogy, and that analogy had been used many times before, and they did have a fuller picture that was supposed to be conjured in their mind from that that we might not have because we don't spin pots all the time. So, and we don't have the heritage of the Jews. So Jeremiah 18, 1 through 6. I'll read it for you. Um, this is the first time that the analogy of the potter and the clay comes up, and it's from the prophet Jeremiah, and God is talking to him, and he's telling him about Israel, and he says, I'm going to show you a vision of how I am working with Israel, of how I'm going to unfold my plan, and here's what it's going to look like. So this is the story they have been told. This is what is conjured in their mind. Jeremiah 18, 1 through 6. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Stop there for just a second. The clay was spoiled. The clay was already spoiled. And I did a little bit of research, and you can read more about this. I didn't think for our purposes this morning it was that necessary to go into. But, like, there's clay that, like, can be, like, can fight against the molding and the shaping. And then there's good clay that will give and go and be soft and graft. 
So this clay was already marred in the potter's hands. And so he, as a skilled craftsman, begins to rework it, to use it for what he is trying to accomplish. Um, it's not already, not painting this picture of like grabbing a piece and being like, I don't really like you very much. I'm going to make you into destruction and then firing it up and throwing it and breaking it. You know, like some of these images can be kind of unsettling for us if we don't have the full picture. So the verse continues. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Okay, so the potter is re-sculpting this clay that was spoiled and he's making it as it seems good for him to do into a good purpose. And then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will pluck it up and break down and destroy it, so if at any time I decide this clay is not working, this clay is fighting against me, this clay is not going to turn into the pot that I want it to, if that nation, concerning what I have spoken, turns from its evil, I will relent. So if that clay starts working with me again, if it softens and if it moves, then I will relent of being done with it, of the disaster I intended to do to it. And if at any time, well, okay, so then I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, so I will be making a pot, and if it does evil in my sight and it is, isn't responding to my hands, not listening to my voice, then I'll relent of the good that I intended to do to it. Then I will relent of the use that I intended it for. This is the lens through which I'm reading it through, at least, and you can definitely disagree. As far as I'm seeing here, when I fill out this bigger picture of the potter, working with the clay and God talking to Jeremiah of how he's going to use Israel or relent from using Israel. To me, this isn't a story of no choice. This is a story of response to choices and a long-suffering patience. It's a story of God working and reworking and waiting on the the relenting or the evil choices or the not evil choices, the listening to the voice and the not listening to the voice as he's working, he's waiting and responding, and it's a story of never too late, as far as I'm reading it. Um, and right now, Paul is talking to about a contingent of Israel that sounds a lot like verse 12 in this Jeremiah 18 section. It says... He's talking about wanting to relent of his plans and use it for good purposes and rework it. But then he says in verse 12, but they say, that's in vain. We'll follow our own plans and will everyone act according to the stubbornness in his evil heart. And Paul's going to go on in chapter 10 and 11, and he's going to say, even still, even with all of this, we're going to read in the next couple weeks, I still have hope that they're going to turn around, that they're going to relent and be recrafted in. So if this was a story of God determining from the very beginning and nobody having a choice, I just don't know why Paul is saying, but I still have hope that they will choose. And that why he's saying when he very first starts this out, that the spirit inside of me, the very spirit of God, attests that it is the same as mine, that I wish that they could be saved, that I wish that they would turn around and repent. He's aligning himself with God and saying, this is the heart of God, that I want these people and I believe these people can re 
can repent and become part of the carrying of the message, be part of the people of God. So did the potter spoil the clay, or did the clay come to the spot to the potter's hands already spoiled and flawed? And now the potter is reworking the clay so that he can continue to carry his purposes. Um, this picture, some vessels will humble themselves in the potter's hands. They'll be soft and moldable and be used for noble purposes. And others will continue to rebel and to be hardened in their flawed state. But it's never too late. This, for me, is a truth that feels very consistent with the rest of the scripture that I've read. And if we're using scripture to interpret scripture, I feel very comforted reading this this way. Second Timothy, which is another letter written by Paul, he uses the exact same analogy of the potter again. And he says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be made a vessel for honorable use, sanctified, useful to the master for every good work. He's still talking about using the vessels for his purposes. And he's saying, I'll make some, I'll use some, and I won't use some, depending on if they cleanse themselves and if they humble themselves and want to be used. Um, Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. James 4.6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. These scriptures and truths sound consistent with this image of the potter working and reworking and responding. Um, so, interestingly, as Paul is summing up his Romans 9 chapter, he gives one more reference to a prophecy that, um, for me, kind of confirms this interpretation of pride and humility being a really big part of this, Romans 9.30. This is how he sums it up. He says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness by faith. But the Israel who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So that's just very simple, summing up. Okay, so they got it because of faith. The ones who thought that they earned it and deserved it, they didn't achieve it. We talked about that. And then he says, those Israelites who were trying to reach it by works, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the Jews who have been trying to earn this special privilege as the people of God, the ones that were supposed to usher in the kingdom of God, um, they get tripped up as they've been warned that they would because they were told that there was going to be a cornerstone, a shaping of the faith that was going to come and they were going to build up God's whole kingdom around him and that was Jesus. But when he came, they resented him. They did not recognize him. He spoke a message of inclusion, not based on earned righteousness or bloodline or rules. He broke all of that. And that was offensive to some of them, and so they rejected him. Um, and this is where I see our story right after the labor, laborers in the field in Matthew 20. Matthew 21, the very next story that Jesus tells as he's continuing to warn everybody, this is what it's going to be like. This is who the kingdom of God and the people of God are going to be like. This is how I'm going to build my kingdom. 
Matthew 21, he tells another story of laborers in a vineyard. Again, people charged with working God's kingdom with a job. And these laborers, they refuse when they're given the job of working the kingdom and the vineyard and bringing about fruit for the owner's purposes. They refuse to put themselves under the authority of the owner of the vineyard. And, when, and they keep acting like this vineyard is entrusted to them, like it belongs to them, like the spoils of it are for them, that they get to use it for their purposes. And so the owner keeps sending representatives to say, this is like my fruit, I, this is my vineyard, and they keep killing them and rejecting them. And then he sends his own son. If, you, if you're familiar with the story, this, um, this is what happens. Like So he sends his own son, and then they go, well, let's just kill his son, and then we'll really get the vineyard for ourselves, and we can keep it for our own purposes, and we can have it for our own. And Jesus says to them, he references the exact same verse as Paul does in Romans, Matthew 21, 42. Jesus says, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who produces fruits, given to a people who will use it, who will work it for my purposes. Um, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I think it's really interesting when scripture references scripture, we need to pay attention and, re- and like at least assume that the context and the, the messages that are being communicated are intended to be the same. They're drawing on each other for proof texting. Jesus was telling them, you will not get to be used to carry forth my kingdom because you think it's just for you. And you're using it for your purposes. And so you're going to stumble over me, this stumbling block, because you're trying to control and contain it and keep it for yourself. Um, but he says, I just love this last section here. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. To me, that conjures up the same image that we've just been talking about. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you picture somebody falling on a stone and being broken, it's a very different image than a stone coming and smashing on top of a person, right? What I learn about people and about me through this story is that we are prone to pride. We not only want to believe, like I talked about at the beginning, that we can understand how God works, we want to lock him down and say he can't work other ways. And we not only want to believe that we've earned our place before him, but when others are shown mercy, we somehow believe that that steals something from us. And now we want to use him and his gifts for our own purposes and our own plans. And we're upset when he has other plans. And we're prone to pride. Um, what did I say? Sorry, I lost my spot. I think that if we're not careful, pride is the thing that will harden our clay. Pride is the thing that will make us unusable, and it will make us shatter and break us and render us useless to God. If we don't allow ourselves to be broken for God's purposes, if we don't fall in humility upon the stone or soften in the potter's hands, if we fight and harden and reject what God is doing in our lives, then we 
are left unused. Then we get passed on because God's plan will continue. He is faithful despite the faithless. He doesn't need necessarily any one of us. He longs and wants to use all of us. All of us. We are his people. But he is carrying a message of inclusion, of faithfulness, of open arms to the world. And he wants to use us. But if we reject that because it's a little uncomfortable for us, if we fight against that and go, well, that's not super fair, then he's like, okay, I will use who I need to use. The kingdom of heaven can be taken from you too and given to somebody else to carry it forward. And it will be given to the humble. It will be given to the ones who break themselves on the stumbling stone. 